Welcome. This is Ukraine World Podcast. Ukraine World is a, an initiative aimed at explaining the Ukrainian developments for international audiences. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, and I'm very glad to have here Gulliver Craig, who is a correspondent for France 24, French TV channel. Hello, Gulliver. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for joining. You have been in Ukraine for many years already, and, uh, well, you covered Maidan a lot. Can you can you t- tell me how Ukraine changed since 2014 and how it failed to change? It's a little bit hard for me to answer that question because my knowledge of Ukraine has evolved over these five years. I knew Ukraine before 2013 because the first time I came here was actually, as a journalist, the first time I came here was to cover the 2010 election and I came regularly between 2010 and 2013. So I've been coming for a long time and living here for five years, but at the same time, you know, when I arrived in 2013, I spoke some Russian, didn't really understand Ukrainian at all. Now I can speak Russian more or less okay and understand Ukrainian and uh, know a lot more about the country than I did. And so how much are things things that have changed and how much are things things that I didn't realize before or that I understood wrong at the beginning and that I understand better now. But my impression is that people speak more Ukrainian in Ukraine than they did when I first started coming here and then they did in 2013. In Kyiv in particular, you hear more Ukrainian spoken. I don't think that that's just because I'm more able to hear the difference than I was when I first started coming here. I really think that this is genuinely the basically language, the Ukrainian language has progressed and spread gradually across Kiev and to a certain extent also further east. In the first years when I used to come to Ukraine, there was hardly any, I don't think there was really a bar in Kiev that I would have gone to if the same bar was in Warsaw or London or Paris because there was nothing as good as what there were in Western capitals. Now that's absolutely not the case. Kiev is really vibrant, full of nice places to go out where you can hear good music, you can eat good food, you can drink nice cocktails. I think that Kiev, for the middle class and those who've got money, has evolved in a really, really positive way in terms of the sort of entertainment and dining and opportunities that there are here. But, is it um, a symptom of this new middle class? Is it a symptom of uh, the way how Ukrainians treat their life in a way, in a more comfortable way? Yeah, it must be. It must be. And it must be a symptom also of uh, a younger generation of Ukrainians uh, who are coming of age and considering themselves to be uh, fully-fledged Europeans. And But I say that also with a little bit of hesitation, because although I've only been to Moscow once in the last five years and didn't have that much of a chance to look around... Um, a lot of people have told me that Ukrainian hipsterism is to a certain extent modeled, perhaps to a greater extent than some Ukrainians would like to admit, modeled on Russian hipsterism and that you find similar places in Moscow to what you do in Kiev and similar designs and style trends. I don't know, I haven't been to Russia enough to really assess uh, how much that's true. The impression that we all have is that it's like this is part of a general kind of Europeanization of Ukraine and that... I mean, Kiev has, yeah, become a really cool city, a really nice place to live. But I say that, obviously, being aware that that is the case once you've got a certain income level, not necessarily a super high income level, but that there's a lot of people in this city who are still pretty much excluded from going to all these nice places because they're just too expensive. And if you go to, for example, the provincial towns, if you go to smaller towns, yeah, but in there, provincial... there, is, there is no cafe culture. People still don't have money for that. I don't know, though. There is a bit. I mean, you know, Mariupol has 
got some pretty nice places now, which it didn't have before. I know Mariupol's not a very small town. It's 500,000 people. Um, and maybe it's influenced by... But also Kramatorsk, you know. Yeah, but... These but, are places maybe where there's a significant number of expats and that's influencing exactly, things, yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. If you go to Severodonetsk, I've been there to like one week ago. Of course, there are some places, Yeah, but, but the best restaurant in Ukraine is in Severodonetsk. Okay, really? Yeah. Oh, oh which What's one? it called? It's a Georgian restaurant, a family-run Georgian restaurant. It's so simple in its decor, and the, all the food is uh, cooked there and with the most delicious ingredients. It's okay, but, but it's an interesting trend. I agree with you that this culture of you know going out is, is, is really spreading across the country. And is it a sign but, um, for you I that... should probably talk about more serious things about how Ukraine's changed, right? There's, there's been progress in things like bureaucracy. The places where you used to have to go to get your administrative documents slowly but surely they are being modernized. You get an efficient queuing system. You don't seem to be feeling like paying a bribe would be in any way an appropriate thing to try to do. All of these things. Uh, the, 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 but but restaurant culture is also an indication of something deeper going on because it, it would not have happened if there was no liberal, certain economic liberalization, business liberalization at, uh, from, from 2014. So the restaurant uh, owners have much easier ways to open their business than before. Do you think that this is a sign that Ukraine is more Europeanized or more, more Westernized than some five, seven, ten years ago? Like I was saying, the first um, thing that you think of is that, yes, clearly it is. But then um, I think that you see similar phenomena happening in Russia as well. And so I don't know if that means that we should say that Russia is being more Westernized. Maybe it is, actually. Maybe it's fair to say that Russia also culturally is being Westernized in some level, despite uh, the growing conflict between Russia and the West uh, on the political and geopolitical But I think the difference is, is that Russia con uh, considers itself as a competitor of the West, whereas Ukraine mm. is not considering itself as a competitor yeah. of the West, mm. right? What Ukraine failed to do since 2014? There's a lot of things that Ukraine has failed to do since 2014 in terms of realizing the promises of Maidan. Um, the main one, I think, is really trying to punish those responsible for corruption and uh, yeah I mean that's the main thing isn't it that they haven't basically there was an expectation after Maidan that things would be really different and that the kind of corruption schemes that existed before would not be allowed to exist anymore and that those who've been engaging in corruption and who've been getting rich off the back of corruption would not be able to do so anymore and that they would be punished and no one's been punished but I think that you have to think that the first part of the equation, the closing off of the possibility to have those kinds of schemes, there's been more progress on that than there has been on punishing those responsible. And the lack of punishment for those who've been engaging in corruption is grabbing the headlines rather more than the introduction of systems like uh, Prozoro, the public procurement system, or the raising of uh, tariffs to market prices, which basically prevents the very big corruption scheme that there used to be of selling gas at the subsidized tariff as if it were for households when really it was for businesses and pocketing the difference. That scheme's been more or less closed. People don't talk about that enough. Prozoro, I think people do talk about quite a lot and some business people I've spoken to basically say it doesn't work that well because they insert clauses into the requirements for... The, the tenders which only insiders know 
um, or which basically mean that only the person who paid the backhander is going to be able to get. So it doesn't work. It's not foolproof, it's but not clearly idea, it's progress. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, There is some progress, yeah. Another thing that I'd like to mention that is really, really visible in Ukraine that has improved is the roads. I mean, they're still terrible, but they were really, really terrible before. Wow. And now they, some of them are not terrible. Some of them are okay. You can drive from Lviv to Ivano-Frankivsk pretty much the whole way on a road without potholes. And there's a lot of examples it, of that. It's, it's very interesting because we know each other for quite a lot of time. And uh, you are more, sometimes more pessimistic than I am about Ukraine. But on roads, I'm more pessimistic. Oh, I really? think that this is a disaster. It is a, it's a huge failed opportunity if, if, you, if you take roads, uh, for example, between cities or... Uh, like in 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 Oblast, etc. But let me ask about Donbas war. You spent a lot of time there in mm-hmm. Donbas. You you covered many stories. What is your estimation of of it? How it began? How it continued? Who is guilty? And what will be its future? I think that it's important to say absolutely clearly, and I say it at every opportunity: this war would not be happening if Russia did not want it to be happening. That is the ground zero of any analysis of it. So the diagnosis is, why is there a war in eastern Ukraine? Because Vladimir Putin was not happy about Ukraine taking this pro-European direction. Perhaps he's scared that Ukraine's going to join NATO and he wanted to cause trouble. With probably the help of certain Ukrainian business interests and members of the Party of Regions, who at that time also saw their own interest in supporting this separatist effort. But clearly the weapons, most of the weapons that the separatists have, the so-called separatists, if you want, we always should be careful about the terminology here, are coming from Russia. Apparently they're still coming from Russia. Um, I haven't, when I've been there, come into contact directly with Russian officers who are directing the separatists. Obviously, they try to present a front to us where the people that you come into contact with, if you're going as a journalist past a checkpoint or something like that, are going to be people who seem to be locals. But a lot of friends and colleagues of mine have, at various points over the course of this conflict, come face to face with the people who are actually putting the strings and I really believe them and I really trust them and I think that their evidence is pretty strong that Russia is micromanaging this uh, situation and that apart from with a few kind of those rogue uh, warlords who there were earlier on in the conflict who maybe took over one town or another like maybe Bezler in, in Gorlovka, I think basically the separatists are being controlled by 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 Russians, by the Russian um, intelligence services. Do you have any idea of seeing things on the ground? What are the goals of Russia? Do they want to bring Donbass back to Ukraine on their terms? Yeah, I think that that would be what they would um, like to achieve in the medium term, but I'm not sure that... I'm not actually sure I understand why they don't do it already, because... I think that Russia's goal was to destabilize Ukraine and to create a situation where the idea of Ukraine joining NATO in particular, but even also the European Union, was completely unrealistic. There's no way a country that's at war is going to join NATO, right? So they've kind of achieved that already. And in a way, in terms of destabilizing Ukraine, they've now created a situation where those people who are still living in the occupied areas of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast are really angry with Ukraine, don't want to be reintegrated. There's a huge issue with any kind of um, justice over this because Ukrainians are rightfully going to want some people to be punished. There's a lot of resentment on the Ukrainian side against people on the Donetsk and Luhansk side who are seen as having collaborated with the separatists. 
there's it's just a huge kind of worms not even to mention the huge economic reconstruction effort that would be necessary so basically it would be such a poison chalice to hand those regions back to ukraine now that i find it quite hard to understand why they don't just do it already and save money that they're spending on the weapons because i mean i don't mean to sound at all like i'm you know wanting to give vladimir putin advice or anything i mean i think it's an absolutely reprehensible thing that russia has done here but, but look, now I, I, think I think that they've achieved their goals of destabilizing ukraine with I, this. i think they're waiting for the moment where where they can say look we're bringing donbass back but on russian terms i mean huge autonomy federalization yeah. well that's what's written in the uh, minsk agreement but yeah exactly but uh, as soon as the fighting continues there is consensus among Ukraine and Western powers, Germany and France, that we are not passing to the political parts of the Minsk Agreement. Do you think it is this logic is correct? I mean, because there are Minsk Agreements, everybody is talking about the Minsk Agreements, but in Minsk Agreements there is this very dangerous point of creating a very uh, poisonous, autonomous region uh, inside. Yeah, Ukraine. and I and think that, that will be a Russia scenario. As long as the fighting continues, then there are various points that Ukraine can use to justify very clearly why Ukraine is not moving any further with the application of the political aspect of the Minsk agreements. For example, I think it says in the Minsk agreements that elections should be held under Ukrainian law in those areas. Ukrainian law does not allow armed people to be present at, you know, in polling stations. It, Ukrainian law says that there should be um, some degree of media freedom and that all candidates should be allowed to express themselves and given access to the media. Those conditions are not met in either Donetsk or Luhansk, so they don't need to look any further to say why they're not doing that, for example. Another point is the closing of the border. I think that Ukraine can reasonably say that the spirit of the Minsk agreement was that the border between Russia and Ukraine should be closed and that Russia should no longer be sending arms across that border. And apparently that's not the case. So. It's a spirit. But if you look the text, uh, it, it clearly says that first election and then closing. Of the oh, really? well, and, then... I, and I think this is this is a, the trick of, of Putin of making the Minsk agreements basically a text made upon Russian terms, it, it, which makes it so so difficult. I think that if you want to accuse Ukraine of being at fault in not adhering to the Minsk agreements, that is only the case if you say that Ukraine is violating the ceasefire unprovoked, which I think that Ukrainian soldiers are in some cases and in some areas. But I don't think that in terms of the political obligations of Ukraine, I don't think that Ukraine is failing to meet those obligations. I think at least it's the interpretation of the text of the Minsk agreements that Ukraine offers is a perfectly reasonable interpretation and in which one can argue strongly. No, but my point is that you're you're asking why Putin didn't achieve this scenario of putting Donbass back to Ukraine. And I think he's mainly interested in continuing the war than putting Donbass back to Ukraine. Therefore, he continues of this destabilizing, creating sure. this wound, you know. But, uh, but yes, I mean, that, that seems to be the case on the evidence of the fact that he's not doing it. But I just don't quite understand why he thinks it's more in his interests to continue the war which carries costs for Russia in terms of sanctions against Russia, in terms of literal economic costs of the weapons and things like that. Um, when I'm not sure whether or not 
it really helps him achieve his goals in terms of destabilizing Ukraine any better than stopping the war and handing these poisonous regions back to Ukraine would. But I mean, evidently he doesn't think like he does. Evidently he doesn't agree with me. <laughs> Let's talk about communication. You you criticize mm. quite quite a lot from the journalist point mm. of view. Ukrainian communication. What is what what are the major points of you of of of, uh, of this communication that you don't like? What mistakes? What good things and bad things Ukraine did about in this communicate communication policies around the war? I think that in the very beginning, Russia was obviously lying by sending messages that Ukraine had been taken over by a Nazi junta um, and claiming that uh, Ukrainians had committed uh, atrocities against local people in Donbass and uh, all sorts of other things. And also Russia, since the war in Georgia in 2008, at the very least, had a reputation for being a mendacious state. And there was an opportunity for Ukraine to be the side that tells the truth. And even if that meant sometimes admitting things that weren't very pleasant for Ukraine to have to admit, for example, admitting that at a certain point a Ukrainian missile had hit a residential area of a city that was held by the Russian-backed forces, then it would have been better in the long run to build up a level of credibility. And instead, they squandered that opportunity. Instead, we had this Lysenko, who was the spokesman for the Ukrainian military in the beginning, giving wildly inaccurate information. At some point, I remember even, you know, saying that there had been a village that had been bombarded and that there were 11 people dead. This hadn't even happened at all. And so after starting off, we as journalists thinking we can trust what the Ukrainian spokespeople say, we can't trust what the so-called DNR, LNR spokespeople say, it became very quickly, we can't really trust what any of them say. And the general feeling in Ukraine that you can counter lies with lies, I mean, maybe, or propaganda with propaganda, that argument might have some value if there were equal forces. But you're countering a massive Russian propaganda machine, which is always going to have more resources than Ukraine. And I think they really made a, a, a wrong decision with that. That's in terms of the way that they communicate about what's going on in the war. Then I think the Ukraine is just always shooting itself in the foot by allowing things to happen that are obviously going to create negative headlines and that are obviously going to be exploited by the Russians and amplified by the Russian media outlets. And you hear Ukrainians saying, if we didn't do these things, then they would just make something up anyway. I'm thinking about, for example, the policies that the Ukrainian Memory Institute, uh, led by Volodymyr Vyatrovich, uh, pursues, which uh, favor the you know great glorification of people who collaborated with the Nazis in World War II and things like that, which are not like things like uh, allowing the Lviv city to organize uh, Shuhevich Day on his birthday, when this guy is such a controversial person. I mean, it's obviously going to be sending a bad message. And it's obviously going to be amplified by by the Russians and by whoever else is against Ukraine. And why does why does Ukraine allow these kinds of things to happen? Why instead not have some kind of very public and concerted effort to discuss these issues and to try to have a national discussion, but also not just within Ukraine, which is very necessary, but for the purposes of external communication to show that Ukraine is a country that is trying to have a national discussion about history that's a bit more reasonable than just basically saying, if anybody calls any Ukrainian a Nazi, that's Russian propaganda, which is the Vyatrovich line. 
Well, I think I think these are dangerous, uh, dangerous, oh, not dangerous, but very amb- uh, ambiguous things in in Ukrainian discussions about identity. I I agree with you. For example, my point is that it is much be- better to heroize people like dissidents, right, in the who who fought against Soviet Union in the 70s and the 80s. The, Clearly, morally, clearly, people without this ambiguous record, yes. then, then going back to the 30s, and we understand that in the 30s, 40s, I mean, Europe as a whole was a very, very strange and tragic and uh, uh, thing because the far right was the trend right there. But on the other hand, there is certain continuity of this identity building, which which makes, of course, people like Bandera, Shuhevich, Donsov, and all the others cherished by some Ukrainians, and I, I think it is. It's it's kind of radicalizing on both ways. I think it's on the one hand it's heroizing people who are very ambiguous. On the one, on the other hand, it's a tendency uh, to say that any kind of Ukrainian patriotism and nationalism is already a, a step towards Nazis, which is also exaggeration. I think that there's a certain stubbornness on the part of Ukraine and an unwillingness to recognize that. We, the Western media, you can call this a confession if you like, but we, the Western media, are not going to be sophisticated enough to seize all of the nuances. I mean, even I have difficulty, if I'm in France trying to explain that you can't treat Ukrainians who are racist or homophobic in quite the same way as you would treat French people who are who are racist or homophobic because it's a different society because it's maybe at a you know in a different phase of its discussion about those kinds of questions because it doesn't have mass immigration of people from uh, countries where people have darker skin in the way that France does and therefore that discussion has not been had you know so you try to make these arguments in France and say you know come on a Ukrainian racist is not exactly the same as a French racist and people look at you like you know this is you're on really thin ground trying to even uh, get people to accept those kinds of nuances because in the West people think if you're racist or homophobic you know you're basically a bigot and a bastard <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean, there is uh, uh, this dilemma of Ukrainian 20th century: should we focus on national identity, national values, or should we ho- focus on h- universal human rights? This is and basically, one... and basically, I would say that in Ukrainian intellectual history in 20th century, there are big number of people who would rather say that Ukrainians are different uh, from Russians, for example, from Russian authoritarianism, not by their language or identity, but by their political culture, which is more diverse, for example. Absolutely. I think that that is the thing on which Ukraine should try to really, around which it should really try to focus its national identity as a country that we are the freedom-loving people. We are the country that respects human rights. And I'm not to say that the defense of the Ukrainian language is not important, but I don't think that it should be the cornerstone of Ukrainian identity in the same way. And I think that Poroshenko allowed it to be because he wasn't making enough progress on things like uh, economic development and the fight against corruption, and also because he himself is perhaps not as keen on media freedom as one would like him to be because he wants to control the information sphere, I think, quite a lot. And therefore, it was quite convenient for him to easily please those who are in favor of that kind of um, boosting of Ukrainian identity rather than focusing on freedom, human rights and those kind of things. But I think in the long run, you know, Ukraine's going to be stronger if it's 
um, trying to build its identity on those questions of freedom, democracy, human rights. And if there's anything that I think is positive about Volodymyr Zelensky's election, it's that because I think that he is keen to try to found Ukrainian identity on those kinds of principles and to really stress those kinds of principles more than uh, Ukraine's linguistic and cultural differences from Russia. I will say this with the caveat of um, that doesn't mean that I think that there aren't a lot of problems with Volodymyr Zelensky's election as president, but that's the one, let's, the single most positive thing about it that I see. Let's talk about him. Just a footnote of what you say. I, I totally agree with you that the human rights idea should be the, the, the cornerstone. The problem is just a nuance. The problem of Ukrainian history is that at any time that we had uh, a kind of a romantic vision of human rights with regard to Russia, for example, we lost. I mean, this is this was a story of the early 20th century uh, Ukrainian independence, which was all, all about those leftist socialists who who were uh, Vinichenko workers who were saying we we don't need army at all. And therefore, this I think this thing is in memory of Ukrainians. And then radical nationalism of the 30s, like Donsov Bandera, were reaction to this. And people who are want to fight for independence, they find the heroes in, in Bandera Shukhevich rather than, for example, these uh, socialists or human rights liberals. Uh, and that what makes Ukrainian story di- di- difficult. Mm. But I agree, of course, that it is wrong to to find the heroes in the 30s. And that's right? the um, the argument made by people who are in favour of the language law, which seems to some commentators in the West to be quite the wrong time to be introducing these kinds of laws because it alienates um, a lot of people in Ukraine who don't want that kind of thing. Those who defend uh, the law that's recently been passed to defending the Ukrainian language basically say, you know, you guys who think we don't need this are being very naive because we really need to take every opportunity we can to push it as hard as we can because otherwise, you know, Russia will use its influence via the Russian language to continue to, you know, spread its influence across across Ukraine and and, uh, I mean and I think that that argument makes sense and I think that the argument is something that people who are criticizing these Ukrainian policies don't pay enough attention to and also I think that some people who are criticizing these kinds of Ukrainian policies just don't realize how prevalent the use of Russian still is in Ukraine but I don't necessarily think that for all of the reasons that I think these arguments are valid, I don't necessarily think that it's right, because I do think that there are a lot of people in Ukraine who have every right to be considered fully fledged Ukrainian citizens and who are willing to consider themselves patriots who really don't like it and who are not on board with that. And the evidence of this is what policies the former party of regions groupings are going towards these parliamentary elections with. They are still trying to campaign on these kinds of identity and language issues it's not because they ideologically feel strongly about it it's because they think it's the best way to get themselves as many votes as possible which means they must have sociological data which shows that people care about this stuff and therefore you know those who are pushing the ukrainian language so strongly need to admit that there are clearly a lot of people in ukraine who feel differently and who care about it quite a lot and that maybe it's not worth risking making enemies of those people at this current stage. <laughs> Let's talk about Zelensky. We already, mm-hmm. You already mentioned mm-hmm. him. It's very interesting that 
Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that most Western uh, journalist experts were and are still very enthusiastic about Zelensky. Oh, I don't think very enthusiastic. But but I did not not, I, I not as skeptical as the Ukrainian equivalents. And and for example, the big uh, the big part of Ukrainian pro-Western and post-Maidan NGOs, civil society, is so skeptical about about him. How do you explain this difference? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, it's the big question of the moment. And see, some people explain this difference by saying that this Ukrainian civil society was very attached to the idea of uh, promoting Ukrainian ethnic identity and the language and the, what we've just been talking about. And it's just disappointed that somebody who's come to power who doesn't have that same vision. And therefore, the Ukrainian civil society is uh, basically wrong. And then the Ukrainian civil society, I think a lot of these people basically think that the Western commentators are being extraordinarily naive and that there's something about Zelensky that they maybe can't see just uh, in, in his behavior that, that, that they find, you know, just doesn't inspire trust. A lot of Ukrainians that I know don't like Zelensky also because they just don't like him. They don't like the way he talks. They don't like his jokes. They find him to be more backwards in terms of his humor than what their vision of Ukraine is. And I think that certain foreigners basically think it's cool. A comedian's come to power. That means he must be in some way a satirist. And you look at the best bits of the series Sluga Narodu and you see some quite good satire and you see that he's channeling what I mentioned before, I think is really righteous anger against the Ukrainian political class. And then Ukrainians who are maybe more familiar with his work and with Kvartal know that it's also full of really sexist jokes and really bad jokes and primitive kind of attitudes. Yeah, which, and therefore comes... they don't have so much confidence in Volodymyr Zelensky's intelligence, you know, and therefore they're more likely to think that the guy is not this like super sharp operator that uh, some in the West see him as, but more likely to be somebody who's not really going to be clever enough, even if he wanted to, to outwit the oligarchs and the other um, nefarious forces who are vying to influence him. I think that that's the main thing. I think that, but I don't know, like, do, do you believe in Volodymyr Zelensky's good intentions? It's hard to say he's a good actor, but I, hmm. I, I think I think uh, some people in the West just miss, miss uh, they probably don't see this, you know, his roots in the Russian and Soviet humorist culture, and that's that's what frightens all those people, post-Maidan people, who who see him as a continuation of this Russian world, but they, with the smoother terms. But at the same time, I think that the pro-Poroshenko people are sometimes so in, intransigent that it it is also it is also very bad. I think Zelensky can be somebody who uh, who will try to avoid this ethnic cultural uh, ghetto. And uh, modernize people who who had pro-Russian sentiments before. Yeah, and, but, but I mean, see. seeing things like when Zelensky um, he made some kind of campaign video, the message of which uh, was uh, the necessity to unite Ukraine, and some Ukrainians reacted basically by saying that he's promoting Russian propaganda by suggesting that Ukraine is divided. I mean, I think that that is really a serious case of denial. And very dangerous. This is the continual problem with Ukraine, basically, that Russia, and this is the way Russia operates with its propaganda all over the world, takes a small problem and exaggerates it and uses it for its propaganda purposes. But that doesn't mean the problem doesn't exist in the first place. And the Ukrainian 
reaction in the case of Ukraine when it's been Russia suggesting that everybody in eastern Ukraine would actually rather be part of Russia and that they're completely Russian and that there's this massive east-west divide. The Ukrainian reaction to say there's no division at all is quite wrong. Exactly. It's a division yes. which exists. And if you want to really combat Russia, I think you need to recognize that the way Russia works is to take existing problems, add to them and promote exactly. them as much as exactly. possible. They don't yeah. make stuff up. That's how they work. And that's their strength. And that's why some people watch it. And that's why some people believe it is because they take a grain of truth and grow a tree of lies out of it. But that, the, if, you, if you remove the grain of truth, they can't do it. And Ukraine is not willing to remove the grain of truth. That's, Kaleva, that's the major point, And that's the point we are promoting here at Ukraine World as well. Uh, we made a paper on Russian propaganda, for example, where we said, look, in 2014, it was about fakes. Now it's much more complicated. It's, it's about really taking some facts putting it out of the context, exaggerating it. Therefore, the work with the Russian propaganda is now much more complicated because you have to have, you have to be much more critical. You have to understand that it's not, it's, it's not enough to say, well, this is a fake, this is not true, but indeed they're manipulating with some real things. Let me ask a final question, Gulliver. Are you basically more optimistic or pessimistic about the next five years in Ukraine? I feel like if I say something optimistic... And then all of Ukrainians, the 25 percenters who voted for Poroshenko, if you like, if all their worst fears about Zelensky are um, fulfilled and he turns out to be either a puppet of Kolomoisky to an extent that Kolomoisky pursues uh, truly damaging policies for Ukraine, or if he turns out to be incompetent or, or or if he capitulates to Russia in terms of doing some deal about uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, then then everybody will say, be saying, I told you so, you know. <laughs> I think it's, it's clearly possible that that worst case scenario will come true. But I'm inclined to think that that's not what's going to happen. I'm inclined to think also that Ukraine has built sufficiently strong institutions that... Um, they can uh, they can operate and that they will move forward and that Ukrainian civil society will be continuing to be vigilant and to try to force uh, the government to pursue an anti-corruption agenda and uh, that Volodymyr Zelensky will not uh, decide as his character in the fictional series did to just cut ties with the IMF or do something stupid like that. Actually, he said so in Paris uh, yeah. uh, a couple of days ago, didn't he? And so, you know, if Ukraine continues, I think Ukraine's probably going to continue along the same path. And maybe Russia is also just going to continue in the same way. And therefore, I don't know if it's a optimistic outlook to suggest that this country is going to be stuck with a semi-frozen conflict for many years to come. It's not exactly great, but I don't think it's necessarily going to prevent Ukraine from continuing to make slow but steady progress economically and politically. So I would say if that is moderately optimistic, then I think I'm moderately optimistic. I, I share this view, actually. So so let, let's see. Uh, so far, we see that, for example, on the foreign agenda, Zelensky just continues what Poroshenko did. And that brings me to my... Uh, but was, were, were people who voted for Poroshenko expecting him to not do that? Well, they were afraid, of course. Yeah, and, they uh, were. I mean, and it's, it's very they, afraid, some of them. Yeah. People who I was speaking to on election day, they, they really, it really seemed like they were going to... 
it was almost like as soon as he was elected they were expecting him to suddenly turn around his cards and say ha ha and now we're going to just do whatever putin says or something you know it seems obvious that that wasn't going to happen but let's look what what will be if this way forward will be sustainable thank you so much galiver we had galiver craig who is correspondent at france 24 a french uh tv channel correspondent in ukraine we had a very interesting conversation and i'm glad that uh, although we disagree on some points maybe many points but there is still this conversation between Ukrainians and foreigners which is very fruitful thank you so much oh thank you very much thank you.